from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Sirs, ladies and gentlemen, um, thank you for the kind invitation to speak this evening. And I always find the questions and answers the most entertaining, partly because they're off script and therefore I can't be held accountable, uh, but <laughs> partly because I think that you get more out of an evening like this. So I plan to talk for about 30 minutes and then we can have a good question and answer session. So, right, first things. Move on. Yes. So, as an engineer in the Royal Air Force in our 100th year, I think it's fitting that I use the RAF themes of commemorate, celebrate and inspire this evening. What I want to do is to commemorate notable achievements of women in aviation and aerospace that have forged a path for many of us to follow. To celebrate how far women have come and what small part I and many others in this room can play in inspiring the next generation of women working in the aviation and aerospace industries. So looking at commemorate, it's always daunting when invited to speak at a named lecture. How do you match up to the achievements of such an illustrious individual? And Amy Johnson was an amazing woman. Born in 1903, she achieved a Bachelor of Arts degree, but went on to pursue her hobby, which was flying, gaining her pilot's license in 1929. In December of the same year, she also gained her ground engineer's license. What an amazing achievement. In recognition of this, she was elected to the Women's Engineering Society in 1930. And if that was not sufficient, she was the first woman to fly solo to Australia, taking 19 and a half days. Not content with one first, Amy went on to gather many more. The first to fly from London to Melbourne, the first to fly from London to Moscow in one day, setting records wherever she flew, from Britain to Japan in 1931, from London to Cape Town in 1932, and again to regain her record from a gentleman in 1936. Accolades along the way included a CBE, Honorary Fellow of the Society of Engineers, as well as the Guild of Air Pilots, President of the Women's Engineering Society, as well as being awarded the Royal Aeros Club's Gold Medal. She enlisted in the Air Transport Auxiliary in 1940, flying aircraft uh, from factories to RAF bases around the country. Now, sadly, Amy lost her life in 1941 when her plane crashed into the Thames estuary. A distinguished career, Amy's life was recorded in the uh, WES journal as follows. She demonstrated for all time that women can plan daring feats, can play close, close attention to detail, can superintend and carry out a prescribed programme can overcome obstacles as they are encountered, can learn from misfortune, can face disappointment without loss of courage. To which I would like to add the characteristics of steely determination and calmness under pressure. 
A list of skills that I suspect most women possess then and now. But back then, few had the opportunity to excel in the worlds of aviation or engineering. Now, whilst I believe this has changed, there is still much to do. My second example of pioneering spirit is Baroness Platt of Rittle. Born in 1923, she studied mechanical science at Cambridge and was employed by Hawker, working on Typhoon, Tempest and Fury fighter bombers. How enlightened of Hawker, I thought. She often took control when her boss was away, maybe not quite so enlightened. And when people rang up and said, I'd like to know the cylinder head temperature of the Centaurus engine, she'd rattle them off and there would be a deathly hush at the end of the line. And a voice would say, how do you know? They assumed if you were a woman, you couldn't be an engineer. Although she clearly knew her stuff. She was the first woman member of the Engineering Council who campaigned for equal opportunities for women. Like many women of her generation, marriage brought her professional career to a grinding halt. More of that later. Some 30 years later, in 1983, she was plucked from comparative obscurity in local government to chair the Equal Opportunities Commission, where she was a passionate advocate of helping married women get back into mainstream work serving on dozens of committees, including the Engineering Council, the House of Lords Select Committee on Science and Technology, the Engineering Training Authority, and the Technician Education Council. <coughs> I think you'll agree with me, two ladies who did much to forge the path for others to follow, with some notable firsts along the way. But we are not done with firsts by a long way. The difference in the next few ladies I'd like to highlight is that they are very much alive and kicking, literally, which is a reason to celebrate for aviation industries and for the Royal Air Force. So turning closer to home, the Royal Aeronautical Society, established in 1866 to further the advancement of aeronautical art, science and engineering around the world, appointed its first female president, Jenny Boddy. Jenny joined Airbus as an undergraduate apprentice where she prepared flight software for fly-by-wire aircraft. Since then, she has been involved in research and technology management, wing design and development and the preparation of the next generation composite wing program, the biggest UK aerospace research and technology program to date. I think you will agree, a notable achievement. Now, closer to home for me, the RAF has seen its fair share of firsts. Joe Salter, in 1994, the first fast jet pilot. The first Red Arrows pilot, Kirsty Moore, in 2009. And in 2017, Kerry Bennett, currently flying the Voyager air-to-air refueling aircraft, but what uh, stands her apart, is she made it to the final three in the competition Astronauts, Do You Have What It Takes? In 19, uh, well, in fact, not 19, 2007, we have uh, Michelle Goodman, who was the first woman to be awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for her bravery uh, at, and skill under fire rescuing troops on the ground. Again, a significant and uh, brave achievement. But the RAF is not all about pilots. 
although a few of them are maybe in the room. It's not all about the pilots, even the female ones. We all know it's really about the engineers that design, <laughs> develop, and maintain the equipment which allows the pilots, even those operating unmanned aircraft, to complete their mission often quietly working away in the background, bringing into service increasingly complex equipment. Equipment which is data rich, assuming we can successfully separate the wheat from the chaff, is connected through multiple pathways, assuming we can secure those pathways, and safety and compliance heavy, reinforcing the need to be able to manage risk effectively to get the very best out of the technology that is available to us today. It is certainly a challenge, but it's not one that engineers are unaccustomed to or afraid of. And I should say that I believe that women have excelled at the characteristics that we need to be able to combat those challenges in the future. Our task is to make sure women are part of that movement going forward. Now, as someone who has collected a number of firsts as a female engineer in the Royal Air Force, first female senior engineer on a squadron. Although, interesting, I wasn't the first female junior engineer officer on my uh, first appointment to the VC-10 transport aircraft. I followed another woman into the job, which was quite unusual in 1987. I think the shift that I took over, I wondered what they'd done wrong to get two female officers in a row. Um, and we still don't have enough female engineers in the Air Force, and I'm struggling to hang on to those that we do have, but perhaps we will open that up in the conversation later. I knew certainly that I'd been accepted by the technicians, mostly male, but I did have one or two female technicians, uh, because they would openly moan about their home life in front of me, and all the girly pictures went back up on the wall. It didn't take long. It took about two weeks. Um, I was the first female engineer to command a station engineering wing uh, of approximately 600 personnel, which was when I deployed on Gulf War II. Uh, and before I do an excursion into Gulf War II, I wanna, the eagle-eyed amongst you will note that the bottom left photograph is not the Gulf. It's not Gulf War I or II. It's actually um, a trip to Slovakia where I was certifying a foreign nation's uh, helicopters as safe and uh, airworthy. Uh, as you can see in all of those photographs, there aren't many women. Uh, now, time has gone by, but unfortunately I couldn't find one today that was more recent that had more women in, uh, which again is, is not a good thing. They are out there. A lot of it is because they're quite shy, they're quite modest, and they don't want to be in the photograph, and they don't want to be singled out. But we have to give them confidence that they need to be uh, role models, that they do need to uh, push themselves forward uh, and be as confident as their capabilities clearly uh, are. So uh, we talk about uh, Gulf. Well, in fact, I will have a little brief excursion into Gulf War One, which uh, was an interesting time. A very small team. In fact, we were working with SF, and there is one person in the room that is going to know if I'm, excuse my language, bullshitting today. Where's Ian? Yes, well, he will know. Um, we set out, there was quite a small team. We were, again, converting, um, I'm hoping that the statute of limitations on secrets has passed. Uh, has, uh, we were looking at the foreign aircraft. We were looking at using that foreign aircraft uh, in a particular role, sensitive role. Um, I was selected as the junior engineering officer uh, of the small team of 
absolutely brilliant chief technicians, which was great because they knew what they were doing. Uh, I was just there to make sure everything happened. Um, and I was called to the headquarters and I was told I was going to be given the laying on of hands by our chief engineer at the time. And I'm not going to name names because some people will know who it is. Um, but when I got there, having travelled, you know, for an hour to get there, um, he marched me into his office and um, I got basically three words, don't fuck up, Gray. <laughs> I thought, wow, <laughs> okay. Um, now, in some ways, that was really cool because how was he going to know um, if what I was doing wasn't quite right or if I broke a few rules? But it did kind of put mission command into a whole new uh, sort of uh, arena for me. Small band, small team, doing something that uh, was highly sensitive uh, and doing it very well, the team went off and did the job that they needed to do. Brilliant. But I have no idea how he was going to know if I had indeed, excuse my language, fucked up. Uh, so, moving on back to Gulf War II. As one of two deputy chiefs of staff with responsibility for life support and administration of 1,100 personnel uh, and uh, engineering and logistics support for helicopters from all three services. It was when we were just starting to come together to operate as a uh, support helicopter force, a joint helicopter force, uh, working for a gentleman who was to become the chief of the air staff, uh, Sir Andy Pulford. As a leadership challenge, it doesn't get bigger than that. And uh, my proudest moment was bringing everyone home safely and most of the equipment, having done everything that was asked of us. A good team with a common goal, which I was fortunate to have. Really, can you can do seemingly impossible things with the right team. Talking of seemingly impossible things, my proudest technical achievement was authorising the Tyrannis concept demonstrator, which you saw in my title slide, for its first flight in Australia in 2013. Now, sadly, I couldn't make it to Australia, but I was the person that signed the engineering documents that said this aircraft was fit to fly. And for me, that was uh, a tremendous honour uh, and achievement. And it did successfully fly even better. So back to my jokes about pilots and engineers, it isn't just about pilots or indeed engineers. It's about the whole team, which for the RAF consists of 18 different trade groups, equating to over 50 different roles. But not only that, it's the structures and policies that reinforce the equality and diversity agenda, encouraging anyone and everyone to aspire to be the best they can. In 2017, all roles within the RAF were open to women, the last one being the RAF regiment role. But women still only represent 14% of the RAF, so we still haven't got our message out there completely. When I joined the Air, Force, uh, the Air Force in 1985, as you've heard, women still had to leave when they became pregnant. Whereas today, the RAF has not only embraced women in all roles, but is working hard to set the conditions that enable women to have full and satisfying careers in the Royal Air Force. As recently as last week, the RAF were winners of the Best for Mothers Award, where the judging panel were impressed by the RAF's 96.3% retention rate of service women after maternity leave. I find that absolutely staggering. Now, it might be we don't have enough women who are then leaving and then coming back, but the point is, is we are uh, putting in place mechanisms that allow women to feel they can do that. 
and also the way in which we're embracing family-friendly and flexible ways of working. Also, winners of the Best Public Sector Employer, where the panel were impressed by the way that the RAF is introducing and supporting new and innovative ways of flexible working in order to recruit and retain men and women. Opportunities to rejoin, if you decide that the grass is not greener on the other side, or to join later in life from a comparable industry, or to move into flexible employment during critical points in family life, are all being considered and are being rolled out in the near future, as well as greater use of reserves, which again allows some flexibility, auxiliaries, and much closer partnerships with industry being key to developing our whole force approach. So I believe we have much to celebrate, both in the Air Force and in the aviation and aerospace industries. But how do we inspire the next generation? Because whilst we have much to celebrate, there is still much to do, particularly, my, I believe, young women. Whilst not a pilot or an engineer, but certainly an inspirational role model, a lady called uh, Ali McLean won the Women of the Year Inspirational Award 2017 for her determination to overcome a life-changing and career-limiting injury sustained while serving in Afghanistan. Now returned to full health, she delivers an array of opportunities for service personnel and their families, as well as acting as a role model for those who unfortunately suffer injury while serving uh, for their country. In very much the same vein as these three ladies, during the Battle of Britain, who were awarded, for the first time ever, the Military Service Medal to Women for outstanding service uh, whilst under bombing raids and ordnance falling all around. And these three women were selected as outstanding meritorious service. Now, in terms of inspiring STEM, and I know some may not like uh, that phrase, but it's what we're stuck with, I'm afraid. Uh, and for us, it's a really key part of the RAF engineers' uh, raison d'etre when they join the Air Force. All RAF engineers are encouraged to become STEM ambassadors, included in their initial engineering training and highlighted on their annual appraisals. Amazing what gets done when it gets measured. <laughs> Although it is hard to measure, there are signs that we are turning a corner in terms of our recruiting. Only three months into this year's recruiting cycle, and we have recruited nearly 80% of our target in both our aero systems and communication engineer roles. With last year being the first year in a long, long time, we recruited 100% of our targets. Even more encouraging, from my perspective, is the increase in the number of females going through our STEM courses and uh, the number of all-female teams who are winning the various STEM challenges uh, that are ongoing. Race for the Line, those that uh, are aware of the Rocket uh, Bloodhound Association with Race for the Line, the Robotics Challenge, all won by women's teams. Absolutely brilliant. Whilst acting uh, as a reviewing officer at Welbeck College, the tri-service technical sixth form college, I was asked by a young female cadet who was hosting me, or sorry, I asked a young female cadet who was hosting me what had made her decide to join the REF. So you can imagine my surprise when she said, you did. What? How did that happen? Um, over a year earlier, she had come to Cranwell to listen to me and several other women talking about different careers in the Royal Air Force and was inspired. You don't often get to 
to um, score <laughs> much against your engagement and STEM opportunity, but this one I have definitely scored. Um, only today I was asked about Wellpeck Courage by uh, a young lady at the Race for the Line uh, finals at uh, REF Wittering. Uh, and she was very keen, so we put her in contact with the right people. The only, uh, the only sad bat bit about this is she wants to join the Navy. <laughs> but there's time. She gets to Welbeck. Um, so, talking of role models, the RAF continues to deliver firsts. Uh, in 2011, group captain Emily Flynn and her mother, squadron leader Suzanne Flynn, became the first mother and daughter chartered engineers of the IET. And only last month, they became the first mother and daughter fellows of the IET. As a founder and principal consultant of several companies involved in ICT consultancy and software, Suzanne continues to advise on safety-critical applications. And at the age of 71, she's still working tirelessly to promote engineering. Such is her passion for the profession, despite the many barriers she faced along the way. Emily actively promotes STEM in between her day job. Whilst doing her day job, she was awarded an OBE in this year's honours list for her contribution to cyber defence. And whilst doing all of that, uh, she serves as a mountain, an RAF Mountain Rescue Service and acts as the, is the first female chair of the RAF Mountaineering Association, supporting over 500 members. There is not much that Emily cannot do. Now, with role models like Emily and Ali and Kirsty and Kerry and Michelle all in the Air Force and those supporters outside the Air Force, I believe the RAF is in safe hands in terms of inspiring the next generation. But it isn't just about the RAF. Our challenge here, collectively in the room, is to ensure that the opportunities for everybody in engineering offering exciting careers are broadcast as wide as possible. And I guess that's really what I'm here today, hoping to uh, increase the number of advocates that we have, particularly to encourage women into those <coughs> environments and industries. At which point, I'm going to be quiet and I'm going to open for questions. Thank you. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.